This is Carrie Ghosh. I'm a reporter at Columbus Business First, and this is Crisis Management, a podcast about seeing a business through the coronavirus pandemic. This episode marks a departure. Instead of laying off employees or worrying about its survival, Columbus startup Finite State is hiring and expects its overall business to grow by 10 times this year, even while everyone's working from home. I talked to founder and CEO Matt Wickhouse about the $12.5 million venture capital round that Finite State closed right before the pandemic sent much of the BC world into hibernation. And we talk about how the company's software, assessing cybersecurity risks for connected mobile devices, could be even more essential during a global crisis. We also talk about the relationship between Finite State and Wickhouse's former employer, Patel, and what that means for the tech world in central Ohio. For the record, Patel declined to comment. I hope you enjoy this bright spot in a dismal economy. Thanks for listening. Welcome to uh, Business First. Hi, thanks for having me. First, uh, tell me the news, which is that you have Drive Capital as an investor and now you've landed a new round. Yeah, we uh, we just closed a second round of funding that gave us an additional $12.5 million worth of capital. That's following a $7 million seed round that we raised back in October of 2017 from Drive Capital and Zeta Venture Partners. Zeta is a, a fund out of San Francisco that focuses on large data-based startups. And we, we just closed this last round based upon the, both the product and commercial traction that we've had as a company. Uh, that Series A round was led by Energy Impact Partners, uh, which is a very large fund focused in the energy sector. They're based in New York City and also brought in uh, Zeta Venture Partners in that round and several other investors who are currently undisclosed. So tell me about Finite State and what you do and why cybersecurity for Internet of Things is important, which, you know, seems obvious, but maybe isn't too. <laughs> so yeah. You don't no, have it's, your transformer hat. Yeah, exactly. The Internet of Things security problem has been really changing over the last several years. You know, if you go back maybe five years or so, um, people started to become concerned about things like smart TVs and your Amazon Echoes that are connected to your home network. And, and a lot of the security concerns were around, you know, is that thing spying on me and I don't know it. What's happened over the last, really over the last decade is that like completely computing has shifted from, you know, if you think about an office environment or any other environment with a large network, it used to be full of laptops or, or PCs or servers. And in pretty much any, any device that you looked at on that network was gonna be something along those lines. And then we all of a sudden had an explosion of mobile devices. So you have all of these iPhones and Android devices on networks. What's happened over the last decade is we've, we've seen the growth of the internet of things. These are special purpose devices. And even if I look at my own home, I can see that Internet of Things devices dramatically outweighs the traditional devices I have on my network. I have smart security cameras and Amazon Echoes, and I have automation around some of the things in my home. And the same thing happens in offices. But when we, when we see where it's really growing is in critical infrastructure. So if you look at the network inside of a utility, or you look at the network inside of a government agency, or an oil and gas company, 
there are all of these network devices and all of those devices that are controlling those processes are computers, just like everything else. They're just, the difference is that you can't log into them, you can't connect the screen to them necessarily and try to diagnose what's going on with that system in the same way. But when you think about it, all of those computers have software running inside of it. And as we, as we all are learning you know, every day, all software has, has vulnerabilities associated with it. So when you think about you know, needing to update your, your laptop or your phone to make sure that it, it's protected, the same thing needs to happen inside of these Internet of Things devices. The problem is because you can't see inside of it the same way as you can see inside of your, your laptop, end users of those devices, the, the major utilities, the oil and gas companies, and then all of the customers rely upon that. They don't get to understand exactly what risks are inside of those devices. And what we do at Finite State is we actually take the software inside of there that we call firmware. We automatically reverse engineer it to understand the different parts that are inside of that firmware. And then we can assess that for vulnerabilities. And it allows our customers to very quickly understand uh, how risky a device is and what they might need to do to protect it better. So we take this very opaque situation where you kind of had to blindly trust the manufacturer of a device. You know, hopefully they're updating it. Hopefully they're, they're using best security practices. We've taken that process and we've made it much more transparent so that the end users who are buying these devices or using these devices don't have to just take the manufacturer's word for it. They can actually verify it and their security teams then can use that information to go protect their networks better. So you don't um, make the actual protection, you find the potential flaws and it's up to them to take the next step. So we do multiple things. You know, first is we help, you know, as, as part of the procurement process or the provisioning process for new devices, we help the, the end users understand the risks so that ideally they can, they can assess those risks before they even put them on their network and they can work with the manufacturers to fix them. Like adding that layer of transparency really helps. The other thing we do and where we spend a lot of our time is we work with manufacturers to help them understand their risks before they put these products out to market or before they update the firmware so that their security teams inside of these very large organizations that are building products can better find and mitigate vulnerabilities before it even lands on a customer's network. So does anyone else do what you do? And you know, what is your particular uh, qualification? And you worked at Patel, so... Explain why you're the, the person to do this and is anyone else competing with you in this arena? Yeah, so we're in kind of a, a pretty small segment of the IoT security market that we would call you know, firmware security. And there are a handful of other companies out there doing it, a couple, and a couple startups, uh, one in the US, one in Israel, uh, that are doing things that are somewhat similar to us. But we, we actually tackle the problem from a, from a different viewpoint than most other companies. So we, like you said, uh, I spent most of my career at Battelle. I was at Battelle for 13 years. I started there as an intern while I was at Ohio State and uh, eventually was the founder and the CTO of the cybersecurity division at Battelle, their, their cybersecurity global business unit, and built that organization to close to 200 people um, along with several other colleagues that I was working with there. And, and where we were very uniquely good uh, within the national security sector was in assessing and finding vulnerabilities in embedded systems and, and IoT devices, as they eventually became called. 
what we learned in our career of, of helping the, the national security organizations within the United States, helping them to understand vulnerabilities, is that there were ways that we could automate some of these processes. There were ways to understand the risks that the defenders didn't necessarily know how to do. It was very complicated. It was very manual. But there was this growing wave of, of risky devices that were, were kind of coming at consumers and coming at the private sector. And I knew that from understanding how these devices could be attacked and exploited and, and how intelligence could be collected from them, that you know, the businesses in the U.S., especially the critical infrastructure, uh, needed, needed to understand how best to defend these. They needed the information that we could discern. And so that led me to, to start Finite State so that we could, we could take the expertise that we had developed and figure out how to take that expertise and deliver it to, to the defenders who are scattered around all of our critical infrastructure, all of our enterprises in the U.S. who are very vulnerable to attacks on these IoT devices. Once we figured out how to do that in a way that was highly scalable and easy for maybe less sophisticated users to understand, less sophisticated than our government you know, intelligence analysts that we were used to working with, we were able to take a firmware image and distill it into a very simple risk report that could say, you know, this device is risky for this reason. This other device is risky for this different reason. And it, it was, it's very easy for, for defenders to consume that information and then use it as part of their network security practice. So really, we started the company based upon decades of experience uh, analyzing really difficult to analyze devices, finding vulnerabilities in really complicated embedded systems. And then we took that and we built it into a company that could address different users from all over the place, whether it's a product security team inside of a, a major device manufacturer, the cybersecurity team within a utility, or even others uh, throughout the, the community who are interested in understanding the risk. So is, is Battelle okay with you uh, having left with this knowledge and started this company? Is it with their blessing? Did anyone come with you to the new venture? So I left Battelle actually back in, in 2016, and I, I spent another about a year at another company uh, before starting Finite State. And I would say, you know, Battelle, first of all, we, we haven't used any Battelle intellectual property, anything of that. So we have a team of experts who, who understand cybersecurity and expertise is, is something that, that everyone gets to, to take with them. When we started the company, we actually in the first couple months brought in several people from, from Battelle. Battelle is un, understandably not, not the happiest about that. But in the end, I think Battelle saw the upside. And that is that as we build a stronger tech ecosystem in Columbus, uh, it benefits everyone actually. So we had several people that we, that we brought to the company as we were forming it and, and as we were getting running uh, that came out of the Battelle uh, cybersecurity division. And since then, uh, there, have even been, there have been people that worked at Finite State that went to Battelle. And so when you, bring, when you start to exchange that expertise, everyone gets stronger. Now, obviously, we don't want people to leave Finite State, and Battelle doesn't want people to leave Battelle, but it's inevitable. And having that experience is great. You know, having more companies in Central Ohio who are doing really cutting-edge technical work is good for, for everyone. And so I think Battelle 
at first, you know, saw felt some short-term pain and discomfort from from having another company in town that was doing somewhat similar work. Uh, we're doing it for wildly different customers, and we each have our own value proposition for employees. We're a very early stage startup focused on on the commercial sector. Everyone can work remotely when they want to, especially which is great during the the COVID nineteen situation, but we just have a different culture, different value proposition, different incentive structure than what Battelle has. And Battelle has this 80 plus year history, this national security work they're doing, classified work that they do, that's just different. And so now we have the opportunity for, for people to gain experience in both places. And, and in fact, you know, we've had a really, uh, I would say a good relationship with Battelle uh, after the early days where uh, there was a little bit of discomfort. Where does it, overlap or not with what the Columbus Collaboratory does, which also has a cybersecurity focus, but I believe they're more on software, not firmware. Uh, The Columbus Collaboratory is also a really great institution. We haven't done a ton of collaborating with them, actually, um, just because we're we're doing things that are a little bit different. So, you know, we are, we're a product focused company. I mean, we deliver solutions and sometimes that does include some services. Uh, the collaboratory seems to be a little bit heavier on on services and managed services and focused on probably, I would say, more of the IT security problems that are out there. But I could see us working with the collaboratory in the future uh, as we have all of this really valuable intelligence and that could help power some of the, some of the work that they're doing. Although, you know, nothing is currently in the works. You have 20 people today? We are at, I think, 22 people today and we're continuing to grow and we're continuing to hire quite a bit after this latest financing round, which I would say is pretty unusual uh, at this time. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of companies that are, that are hiring. How are you using the round? What, what is the purpose of it? You know, we should be at, you know, first of all, we're, we're hiring more people. We're hiring uh, software developers and uh, cybersecurity experts like reverse engineers to help grow the company and really take us to the next stage. So we should be, we'll probably be at 35 plus people by the end of this year. So fairly aggressive growth over a 50% growth this year. That's primarily where, where the funding is going towards product development and, and capability building over the next year or two. We have some really great customers that, that we've brought in over the last several months and we're spending a lot of our time making sure that our product can, can solve all of these, you know, really complicated problems that they have. Uh, so we are looking for just phenomenal researchers, engineers, and, and continuing to build out our executive team as well. Uh, we just uh, hired a new uh, executive vice president of product management that comes out of the Bay Area. Um, we're about to be uh, bringing on uh, an ex- a new executive vice president of engineering. We brought in Chris Ritchie, back in December, who is a veteran who came out of Olive. He's our COO, uh, who's doing a just fantastic job. So really it's all about the people and growing this, this really unique team that, that happens to be based out of, out of Columbus, but is, is unique and skilled at a level that's unrivaled on the, on the entire global scale. To the extent that you can't, that there's not non-disclosures or whatever, can you describe your customers um, if there's any that you can name, um, the types of things that projects that you've done, and we'll, I'll, I'll get to Huawei, but you know, it, what industry is it? Healthcare is it? Electric utilities? 
what what are your customers and what is your revenue situation? And if you'll tell me what your 2019 revenue was, I'd be happy to take that info. <laughs> yeah, so I can talk a little bit. And I'm sure, as you can understand, there are some sensitivities around, around customers in general within the cybersecurity market. That can be a challenge because yeah, they, every company is... They want people to know that they know that you're up to something. So... <laughs> Right, right, yeah, it's always kind of a cat and mouse game. Yeah, so the defenders tend to be at an advantage when they can very quietly do their job and stay ahead of the adversaries and they can watch them and and catch them and collect intelligence about them so that they can can update their behaviors. So uh, I'll start by talking a little bit broadly about our customers and and the markets that we're in. So we we do have quite a bit of our, our work focused on the manufacturers of devices. So these are uh, you know, global 500 size companies, generally multinational corporations who are building products and they want to make sure that their products are secure. So we've focused those efforts on, on companies that are providing, really we're looking for companies that are providing devices to critical infrastructure because that's where the, the biggest problems are right now, the, the highest consequences of attacks uh, exist. So we have some, some customers in that sector and in particular, that's where we really can't talk a lot about who they are because um, they are leveraging us to really help improve their product development expertise. I would expect, you know, over the next few months, we'll start to become more public uh, with some of those relationships. We also are working in the energy sector heavily, as, as is probably unsurprising given our investment from Energy Impact Partners. So we really just started getting into working with utilities in the US probably in January. So that was it coincided with our investment from Energy Impact Partners. So we've started um, several engagements with utilities in the US. These are primarily the bigger ones uh, in the country and we're helping them deal with their supply chain security. So they're trying to understand exactly what devices they have on their network and how much risk there is associated with those devices. And in particular, they wanna know you know, should they be updating the firmware for these devices? Will it improve their their risk? And is there a possibility that a firmware update that they're they're bringing in could have been compromised? Um, because there's these really complex supply chains where adversaries can inject malicious code in all of these different places, whether that's during the manufacturing of the device or or during the uh, firmware update process, like compromising an update server, for example. So utilities have to spend a lot of time making sure that they're not going to accidentally load compromised firmware on the device. So we help them with that. So we basically, we can automate this, this risk assessment process for, for these devices. And we're doing that for, um, right now we have two different utilities in the U.S. that we're working with on that particular problem. There's also some regulation in the utility space that's, that's really driving demand for this. So starting in July, the energy sector is regulating utilities into having a supply chain risk management program, which is very specifically focused on these sorts of problems, understanding the integrity and authenticity of the software on these networks. So we're doing a lot of work around that. Spending a lot of time in the energy sector. And then the last area is actually national security and and government still. So we are doing work with with the federal government and and helping them understand their supply chain risks uh, across a lot of different places. So, you know, you can think about you know, sensitive networks that that the the DOD or the intelligence community might be running where 
they want to make sure there aren't backdoors built into devices that wind up making their way onto these networks. Uh, and so one of the best ways to do that is to scan all of the software that's going into that network before it, it makes its way on there. Obviously, you got a lot of attention from the, the Huawei report. What was the business result of that? So now you have Huawei attacking you and saying they used they used the wrong procedures and they looked at old, you know, you've read all the, you know, there's, there's still complaints back and forth on the SEC's website. Um, but did it land you new customers? You know, was it worth it to, to have this giant company going after you? Does the FCC doesn't pay you for what you did there? So was, was that, a, why did you first start that review? Like no one was paying you to do it. And then what was the business result of it? It's a really, really interesting story that I think is really reflective of our values as a company. Uh, so back in, it was about April of last year that we started started this undertaking. And we had some customers that we were working with in different places that had Huawei equipment. And, and as we were doing some analysis of that equipment, we, this was while the, the 5G debate was really getting heated up. And so we saw... We saw that you know, the US and China and, and the US and Huawei in particular were throwing jabs back and forth. And there was a lot of debate going on in the world around, are there backdoors in these devices? Huawei is saying, no, we would never put a backdoor in our devices. And, and the US government is saying, it's obvious that they are, but they couldn't really provide any concrete proof one way or another on either side. And then you had the UK government that had been doing some analysis of Huawei devices um, that was, and they were writing fairly scathing reports, but it was also lacking a lot of hard data because they had this special relationship with Huawei that, that restricted what they could put out. We had this opportunity and to, to look at this, we were finding things uh, as we were looking at Huawei devices on, on networks and, and we had a lot of firmware for Huawei. So we decided to run it in mass. So we looked at about 10,000 different firmware images that uh, corresponded to almost every product in Huawei's enterprise network, networking product line. And so these are devices that could wind up in a data center, that could wind up inside of the 5G infrastructure inside of any country around the world. And we did it because we felt it was the right thing to do. We felt that we were in a very unique position to take an unbiased analytical approach to the, to the problem. You know, are there backdoors in here? How vulnerable are these devices really? And how does it compare to other manufacturers? And so we did that. We, in, in about a 36 hour period, we used our system to analyze all of these devices. And, and really no one had even put a report out about a single device up until that point. So we, we took all of this data and, and we were able to leverage it to understand, to ask questions. So, you know, we were able to see that, you know, 75 times there were obvious backdoors built into it using things called hard-coded SSH credentials. About 55% of the devices that we looked at had a backdoor one way or another. So that was like a secret username and password that was built into the device or a secret crypto key that was there that wasn't documented. So we found that very clearly. We were able to show that the quality of their software was lower than what we see from other manufacturers. So it was, it was leading to more and more vulnerabilities. In fact, we found that on average, there were over a hundred 
known vulnerabilities affecting the latest versions of each uh, product's firmware. So, you know, even as they were updating this, they still weren't patching these vulnerabilities that are really important. And so when you take a step back and you think about, these are the products that underlie our infrastructure. This is what's being considered to power 5G networks where new capabilities are gonna be riding on top of. This is where remote factories are gonna be powered and healthcare um, is gonna be leveraging these networks to do remote surgeries and firefighters are using them in the field. The last thing we want is for that network to be attacked. It's, it's a national security concern. And so that's why we released the report. To provide so data. did you get paid for what you did or did you land customers or what was, what was the result to your business of putting that out? Yeah, so we did not get paid for the report. Uh, that was something that we did on our own, again, because we thought it was the right thing to do and we were able to inform a, a global policy discussion that was lacking data. So, you know, there were some very immediate uh, repercussions for doing that. The first was the White House, Congress, and several other agencies in the U.S. government wanted to talk to us. And so uh, we, we spent a lot of time in D.C. meeting with, with people uh, distributing the report. The report is still used by, by many people in the federal government, including the State Department, as they're talking to other countries about 5G. So they take it with them, which, which is a really big accomplishment for, for this team to be uh, having such a high profile. After that, you know, obviously, we did see an uptick in interest in finite state uh, in general and the capabilities that we have. Uh, some of the manufacturers of devices started reaching out to us because they saw that our approach to understanding the security of devices was really powerful and, and very unbiased and data-driven. We also had an uptick in interest from federal customers. Uh, and so, you know, over about a one year period, which is where we are now. So back in, in we're, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the report in June. We have seen growth in, in customers, both from uh, device manufacturers and from federal customers. When you have an office, where is that office? <laughs> yes. Uh, so we're not using it right now, but we actually moved into uh, a new office last fall. Uh, for the first two years of the company, we were working out of Drive Capital's office, which was was really great as we were a small company. And then uh, we just opened a new office last fall in the former uh, Beam Dental space, which is um, right next to the firehouse on North 4th Street. So we're up on the, the second floor there. Uh, really great space. Uh, we have about 10,000 square feet, which is plenty of space for, for our team to grow uh, over the next year or two. And then what, so what was it like you know, moving in and then doing this raise amid, you know, this national, as you saw this national, uh, international global crisis unfolding, um, how did that affect the business and, and your team? And everybody, yeah, I, everybody's safe and healthy, but. Everyone is safe and healthy, which is definitely the most important thing right now. I would say both myself and the rest of the team feel really fortunate because we wound up having very good timing it's somewhat a matter of luck and somewhat a matter of, you know, putting a lot of work in over the last few years, but we were able to get our fundraise in really before the consequences of, of COVID-19 started affecting the venture capital community. So almost overnight as, as everyone realized that we were heading into this uh, re you know, major recession or, or potential depression that we're dealing with, uh, venture capital started pulling back. And we were able to close our financing around before that really started happening, which is which is really great. 
we also have very good uh, investors who who believe in us and and we're are really excited about what we can do even though there's a lot happening in the global economy so from a fundraising standpoint we we were in in very good shape raised right before all of this went down which is about the best possible time you could you could do that so we have plenty of capital to get through the next uh, set of you know economic challenges that are that are in front of the the country and the world did any of your customers pull back as a result you know similarly we we're in very good shape from a customer standpoint. So we closed multiple seven-figure deals before, before this happened. You know, we made a shift last year. We were spending a lot of time in healthcare and, and we had some really great customers there. Uh, we've, we've really focused though our efforts on uh, the energy sector and uh, OEMs and the federal government. And all of those places are actually really kind of resilient to to what's happening in the economy right now because power still needs to be distributed and generated um the federal government still is concerned about national security and product manufacturers still need to sell their products into these industries that are you know powering our our uh, economy despite what's happening with COVID 19. so if anything i would say the demand for for cybersecurity is increasing in these sectors because if you think about it from a from a global security standpoint, the U.S. is in a weakened state right now, and other countries could be exploiting that. So you can think of you know, China and Russia will look at what's happening domestically in the U.S. and see that as an opportunity to, to potentially attack us in different ways or collect more intelligence from us or, or disrupt our supply chains, uh, because that's just kind of how global espionage works. And so it's probably more important than ever that we are uh, helping companies, uh, helping our critical infrastructure understand their risk and try to mitigate it, uh, especially preventing these supply chain attacks that if they happen, they can be very difficult to find and remove after the fact. So um, how can you go about recruiting to add to the team when you can't interview people in person or yeah. Uh, them into the office. Uh, how, just how are, how, are you, how are you operating right now and how do you intend to grow? Um, or is just everything in that regard on pause until June, July? No, no, we're, we're operating full steam ahead. We're probably moving faster than we ever have as a company. And it's, you know, a testament to the team that we have. They've just been absolutely amazing, uh, despite living in a very stressful time and, and having to change the way we work. So we you know, before Governor DeWine shut everything down, we actually made a decision as a company to transition to a fully remote distributed team uh, just to take that precaution and make sure that we could make that adjustment on our terms. Uh, we did that basically overnight and, and the team adapted. You know, we already had good infrastructure in place as a company with communications from Slack and, and Zoom and, and Google Hangouts and things like that. And we had several people in the company that had worked in distributed teams before, so they were able to coach the rest of the company on how to how to communicate well. And I would say that what's happened from an internal culture standpoint is that our company, the people in the company, have actually come closer together, even though we're we're physically distributed now. And that includes how we interview and bring new new people into the company. And so we need to do it. We we have to continue growing because we have customers and, and new new accounts that are that are coming online um, very quickly and we need to make sure that our engineering and product and, and marketing and sales can all grow 
to, to accommodate that. So we have just shifted our interviews to fully remote. So we do everything through video conferencing and, and it's worked really well. We were in a lucky position where we're hiring and at a time when a lot of people are losing their jobs and, and that doesn't matter whether those people are working, you know, people are losing their jobs across the board. It, it could be a restaurant, it could be a, another startup, a tech company, people are being laid off because demand is down in a lot of different sectors and because, you know, funding is, is low. And so we are able to, to help find people who may not have a lot of other options, um, but are really talented. We're bringing them into the company and we're interviewing remotely uh, to do that. And, um, and in the long run, we'll probably be able to relocate some people to Columbus who will continue to help build out the tech ecosystem here. Speaking of, why Columbus? Uh, is it, you, you mentioned uh, Ohio State. I mean, is this your hometown? You know, what, why is it in Columbus and why does it stay in Columbus? You know, I've, I'm actually born and raised in, in Ohio, uh, went to Ohio State and, and had a great career at Battelle. And so we had kind of a nucleus of people with this very unique expertise. Like I said, probably unique uh, globally in the expertise and they were in Columbus. And so we've grown the company around that. And the company has evolved a lot over the last couple of years, but we have this really great tech talent base in Columbus that's, that's really exploded recently. And so we love it. I think Columbus is, is, fun, is a phenomenal place to build a company. It, I, I tell other, other CEOs that I interact with that we have an unfair advantage being in Columbus. We have a lower cost of living than, than other places. We have amazing tech uh, talent that's coming out of you know, Ohio State and other places in the Midwest. We have access to the Big Ten and several of the best computer science schools in the country are, are just a short drive from Columbus. We're bringing, bringing that talent in. We're able to and have relocated people from all over the country to come join us. And, and it's pretty easy when we show them the type of work that you get to do in finite state that is something that is even attractive in, in San Francisco compared to the other companies that are out there. And you get to do it in Columbus. And when I send Zillow house listings to a potential prospect who's paying, you know, a million dollars for, for a thousand square foot house in the Bay Area or in New York, and they can come and spend half of that or less for a beautiful house in a great school system um, and work for a company like ours, like it's, it's a very easy value proposition. And then people stay longer because I think that there's just, you know, the Midwest values here and the drive that everyone has that's really allowing us to be very successful as a company. So the purpose of the round then is to um, strike while the iron's hot and really, even though you're taking in revenue to like really accelerate the growth and hire, hire ahead of, to grab this market share now. Yeah. So, you know, to give a little bit more detail, we're going to have more than, you know, 10 X growth from 2019 to, to uh, 2020 this year. What our goal is right now with this funding is to really, you know, a lot of it is focused on engineering and product. So we are, the problems that we're solving are really, really hard. You know, the type of engineering we do is really complicated. We're looking at the individual bits, bytes inside of a firmware image, trying to understand all of this stuff. And we're using really advanced math and, and, and machine learning and statistics and things like that on, on this software. And we're, we're really breaking, breaking ground in a lot of different domains. A lot of what we're spending our 
our money on over the next couple of years is building out that world-class engineering team so that we can continue to productize different pieces of what we're doing on, on risk assessment and firmware analysis and um, automating things that have traditionally been very manual and very complicated. And so, so that's where most of our, our money is going towards. We're also, you know, as that product develops, then we will eventually scale up more on the sales front so that, you know, we'll, we'll build out a more robust sales team and sales engineering team. Um, but that's not something we're doing just yet. Where do you see the company in five years or 10 years? Um, do you plot out things like exits yet or is it too early? I mean, obviously your investors want an eventual exit. So what, what does that path look like from your vantage point? When you create a startup and when you take venture capital funding, you know that you're not creating you know, a, a small business. Your, your goal is to build a really impactful and large company. And that means eventually there will be some sort of an exit and that'll be an IPO or that'll be an acquisition um, at some point in the future. In terms of five to 10 years down the road, I couldn't tell you which one of those, those exits we might have. I would love to ring the bell at NASDAQ one day, of course, but you know, we'll have to see. I think that you know, what we're seeing in the market is that there is, there is virtually unlimited upside for us. There are more, like there is exponential growth in IoT devices. The attackers are shifting uh, from the traditional kind of phishing attacks where they email you and try to get you to click on a link. They've really completely changed their tactics to focus on IoT devices now. And, and that's because they're the easy target. And so the entire hundreds of billions of dollars worth of cybersecurity industry is trying to sh- change course to address these new threats. And we're just in a great position to power a lot of that change in, in a lot of different ways. And so uh, I think, you know, we're going to continue to see massive growth in the company. And one day there might be some opportunity to exit one way or another. And we'll evaluate all of that in a way that, you know, most importantly, as, as we're looking at these, we want to make sure that everything that we do as a company strategically helps us achieve our mission. And, you know, our mission of, of making the world safer, like literally safer based on what we're doing. And so uh, if we have opportunities to do that, in partnership with another company, or we have opportunities to do that because we can take on public investors, uh, then we'll make those decisions when, when we get there. It's just a very basic, uh, dumb question, which is what is the, the nature of your product? Would you say you're doing, you know, are you physically taking apart these devices? Are you producing software that pings and searches? Are you a consultant, a researcher, or is it a SaaS thing? You know, what yeah. is the nature of the thing that you are selling to to client? And, and in your parlance, your client you call a defender. You know, someone who's trying yeah. to stop someone from hacking them. They're perfect. Yeah. Not- so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the problem we're solving, and then how we how we actually deliver that to our to our customers. So we talk. Uh, I've mentioned supply chain security a few times. So what that means is um, when you think about a product. So let's say you are, uh, you're buying a device, we can keep it simple. It's a new security camera that you're gonna install on, you know, at, for your doorbell. When you unbox it, that device has gone through a physical supply chain to get to you, you know, from manufacturing to packaging to distribution. It's also gone through this digital supply chain too. And you can think about, you know, if you look, if you open up a device and you look at the circuit board, there's all of these little components on it. And a lot of those components run software. And so when the manufacturer of that device is building it, 
they're actually getting software from a lot of different places. They may get firmware or software from a chipset manufacturer that's in China, and they might get some driver from a startup in Silicon Valley, and they might use some open source software that they download from GitHub and incorporate that into their product. And then they piece all of that together and it gets put into something that we call a firmware image. You take all of that software, you can think of it like if you could take your whole file system on your computer and just zip it up into a package, um, that's what the inside of a firmware image looks like. The challenge with that is that when you get that firmware image as a consumer or as anyone upstream in the, in the supply chain, you can think of a, you can kind of keep looking at this recursively. So uh, if you're the manufacturer of the device, you're getting a firmware update from one of your suppliers and inside of there, there could be open source software and software from other suppliers. It just keeps going and going and going. So what we do is in that final firmware image, the one that's gonna be loaded on the device, you usually get the, the device itself and separately you can download firmware for that, that device and it completely describes everything that's going on inside of that device. We take that firmware image and we reverse engineer it and we unpack it and figure out what all of that software is. Where did it come from? What vulnerabilities does it have? Um, are there, you know, are there, is there malware inside of it that could be affecting the device because there was a supply chain compromise? So we look at all of that. The way we deliver this to our customers is uh, there's two different modes. Both are, are basically the same platform. So we have a platform, it's a SaaS based platform and you can upload firmware into that and it automatically analyzes it and generates these risk reports. So we're automating the risk assessment process for customers. So if you are, so let's say you're in electric analytics, oh, it's basically yep. analytics. You, you treat yep. the firmware image as a database. Exactly. Yep. We, we extract lots of really interesting data and insights and provide analytics on top of it. And then we turn that into a very easy to understand report. We deliver that through a SaaS platform that we have that's very easy for our customers to sign up for. And that's either, you know, that could be uh, a device manufacturer that wants to push every firmware image they create through that so that they can understand that and share that with their product security team. Or it could be uh, a utility or a government agency who wants to defend their network. So they're collecting the firmware updates for all of the products that they already have and all of the products they're going to buy. And then they scan them basically with our platform before they load them into their network. Scale is really important. Um, there's literally no one else in the world that can that can do what we do at the scale we do it. I, I think the Huawei report was a good example, handling you know 10,000 firmware images in in just 36 hours. We we have hundreds of thousands of firmware images we've analyzed. We we look at products that range from uh, smart home devices to PLCs that go into the electric grid to um, to really big complex systems. Um, we can handle all of that, and we can do it at a scale that lets you actually meaningfully improve your security, which is something that there's no one else in the world that can do. Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much. Stay safe out there. Thanks. Same to you.